I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Molly Wood and welcome back to Everybody in the Pool, the podcast for the climate economy, where we dive deep into the climate crisis and come up with solutions. This week is going to feel a bit different. If you've been following me for a while, you might know that the way I got into looking at climate solutions was actually through the lens of adaptation. When I was at Marketplace, I called my series How We Survive. I'm a practical person like that. And as I started that reporting, I was thrilled to discover that people are actually working on fixes, getting us to net zero, creating alternative products and businesses and industries, working on policies to create a healthier and lower carbon future. And also, I still think a lot about adaptation, because the truth is, we've caused a lot of global warming in a very, very, very short period of time, historically speaking. Right now, the planet is most likely the hottest it's been since well before humans existed. And that's already causing a lot of major change and extreme weather, and that is going to continue. The fatal heat waves that we're seeing this summer, where people are literally dying from burns they suffer from the pavement in Phoenix. We're still looking at another week of extreme heat with more people getting severely burned from the asphalt outside. That's just one example of planetary behavior that is not normal and is not going to suddenly go away. There will be huge changes to how we live, where we live, and yes, how we survive. Let's put this in sci-fi terms. I'm a big fan of Octavia Butler and her book, Parable of the Sower. And the way she says change is inevitable, change, she says, is actually God. But that with forethought and planning, you don't have to be a victim of change. You can shape it. You can adapt. You can create abundance. You can survive. But first, you have to accept it. So today's conversation is with a climate futurist, Someone who's thinking about this change and recognizing what's here now, and also creating classes and workshops for the rest of us on how to live with it. I'm Alex Steffen, and I'm a climate futurist and writer who, among other things, I run the newsletter and podcast, The Snap Forward, and I talk about climate change, sustainability, the need for ruggedization, and how we can look at the future with present, more informed eyes. Alex started his career as an environmental journalist back in 1992, and around 2000, he realized that the messaging about climate change and deforestation and toxic pollution wasn't leading to that much change. He started a project called World Changing to promote solutions through journalism. Yes, I'm familiar, and did that for seven years. And then as that was drawing to close, I really began to think more about, well, you know, we've been working on this stuff. Some people have been working on it at that point for 40 years, trying to shift the public debate, trying to move us away from fossil fuels towards more sustainability and so forth. You know, why is it that we're not making more progress? And how has that work changed because of our lack of progress? And I really began to to look at what might a sustainable future look like? How might we envision 
where we're trying to go. And the more that I did that, the more I was sort of thrown back into the present and into the awareness that actually we're already living in the future we were, you know, trying to prevent, but anticipating, Mm -hmm. you know, 20 or 30 years ago. And that if we're going to look at things with a smart vision, we need to understand that we've already gone through a massive set of discontinuities, right? That our old thinking that we've all, you know, the ways we've all been educated and trained, um, you know, brought up to look at the world, et cetera, that it's all out of date. And we're all struggling now with the reality that our past experience is not a very good guide for our present and future choices. Talk to me about this concept of discontinuity. This is something that comes up in your writing a lot. And I am thrilled to have the opportunity to ask you directly to sort of really break it down. Yeah. So discontinuity is a widely used futurism term, Mm -hmm. which basically describes a moment in which the change is not just of magnitude, but of kind, right? Where things become different, not just more. And usually the way that we think about it is it's a moment in which the context for decision-making is changed. So our previous decision-making tools and patterns no longer work the way they were supposed to. Mm-hmm. Right. So again, past experience and education is no guide to future choice. It's like if let's use a clumsy metaphor here, but if you if all you had ever eaten was apples and all of a sudden all the fruit in the world were an orange, you wouldn't know how to peel it. Right. And you would probably eat a lot of very bad orange peel, right? As you figured right. out how to right. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, but we're we're surrounded by these things. Um small and large, right? The fact that the entire The composition of the atmosphere, of the oceans, of soils all around the world is changing, is a discontinuity. No previous generations, you know, uh, lived through that kind of an experience on this scale at this pace. Mm -hmm. But also like the fact that, you know, the sky is full of smoke or that heat is extreme or that, you know, record rainfalls fall, you know, day after day in a winter. These are discontinuities with our previous experience, right? They're pushing us to confront events for which the tolerances in our systems were never designed. Right. And one of my central contentions is that in this moment, discontinuity is the job. That no matter what field you're in, if it has any connection to climate change, sustainability, et cetera, and there are very few that don't now, if it has any connection, your job is how you manage the discontinuity between what's been being done and what must now be done, you know? And that is everything from explaining to people what an orange is to teaching them how to peel it to... Right, to realizing that you're now in the business of growing oranges, right? (laughs) Right, right, exactly. Um, I want to go back a little bit to kind of this evolution of your career and what it has felt like, because it's, you know, it's very... There's the there's the problem part, which I also encountered as a journalist, and it's very frustrating. And then there's the desire to focus on solutions. And then there's the sort of realization that the solutions either aren't happening or aren't happening fast enough. And now you're effectively in kind of the adaptation yeah. game, the, the survival game. Like, how do you feel about that as a human? Well, you know, it. I'd be lying if I said that it didn't take its toll. To yeah. work for years, um, being part of an effort, you know, I hoped to get people to respond to the reality of our situation and confront these massive crises that we were in the process of creating. And only to find out that, wow, you know, like the future we were saying we hope we never arrive at is our present. 
right? We, we basically completely lost that fight for 20 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. And we now live in a world where the planetary crisis is a given. Climate change is largely irreversible. There are all sorts of ecological disturbances that are only going to grow, right? The impact of the crisis in our lives cannot be undone. And in fact, we know because of the sort of delays and things that in the pipeline is in fact a much more chaotic world than we live today if we started doing everything perfectly now. And of course, there's not a lot of signs that we're ready to do everything perfectly. Right. So frankly, it stinks to spend your life trying to avoid a scenario only to find yourself living in it, right? There's, there's no sugarcoating on that. And like everyone, I have gone through my own versions of personal discontinuity, right, of, of recognizing that places and things I love are going to go away, that ambitions and dreams I had are, don't make a lot of sense now in the world that we actually live in, you know? And so it's been tough. But also, I think the thing that I wasn't expecting was to find that on the other side of recognizing that we've now bought a discontinuity and we have to live in it is the realization that that discontinuity is full of opportunities to do things differently, right? And while we can't reverse the parts of this that are tragic and horrible, we can still react to the situation we have and respond in ways that engage more successfully with the reality we now live in. And that that understanding of the world is massively under-discussed, right? <laughs> we don't talk nearly enough about what is now possible because we can now, we have to go faster. Right. So many people, I'm going to stop and acknowledge here that very many people are kind of just at the beginning. I mean, the, the curse of being either a futurist or having good pattern recognition is getting there before everyone else. Yeah. And a lot of people are just at the beginning of kind of this journey of realization or interest or care or effort. And so that is a very hard place to live. So we're sorry, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to the yeah. pool. But it is a time for hard truths. And now let's talk about the opportunities. Yeah. Like the, And that's a lot of what you're writing about now. And then I'm going to ask you about ruggedization. But. Yeah, I mean, we have to give up all hope of a better past, right? That's one of the right. hardest things here. Is we have to give up all hope of a world in which we made better choices because we've already not made those choices, right? And the fact that we are now, you know, irreversibly locked into a situation that we could have avoided and that is going to be full of tragedy and loss no matter what we do is not a real mood lifter. Right. But on the other hand, when we can move through that, um, part of what we begin to experience is is the, what I call the experience of being native to now, right? We be, Things begin to make sense again. Mm-hmm we are able to see that while things are not good, we probably at this point have avoided, you know, the truly apocalyptic scenarios mm -hmm. because of the hard work of millions and millions of people trying to push the ball forward. You know, we've probably, we're probably not headed towards the end of everything. So even though we've lost the opportunity to move through this crisis with minimal impact, we also are not headed towards the end of the world. Mm -hmm. In fact, we're, we're in a much more difficult situation in some ways, which is we're in a trans-apocalyptic future, mm -hmm. as I call it, which is that some places are experiencing the end of the world. Some people are experiencing the end of the world, and other people are going to pretty much be okay for a long time. And, you know, if they make smart choices, especially, and if they got lucky by birth and geography and so forth. And that's not fair 
and it shouldn't be that way, but it is the world that we've made. What do you, I, I also want to clarify one thing before I keep asking you more about solutions, which is that we have most likely avoided widespread apocalypse. I am fond of saying that all apocalypses are local, <laughs> yeah. but that even the future you're describing, you mentioned this, but I want to put a finer point on it, relies on us still starting to do everything right. Like, I don't want to give people, I don't want people to walk away from this saying, oh, okay, so we're in for a hundred years of dramatic change, no matter what we do. Yeah. I mean, we are in for dramatic change, no matter what we do, but we it's are, a spectrum, right? <laughs> but we yeah. could still make it, we could still make it worse. Like, I feel like it's important to say we could still make it much worse. Yeah. Oh, we, we could make it much worse. And there is a chance if we really had a societal transformation, we could in fact hold it to a much more manageable level. We're just not showing any signs of doing that. All right, I know what you're thinking. This is not the hopeful, action-oriented, everybody-in-the-pool solutions podcast I came here for. Don't worry. After the break, we'll talk about what you can and should do to ruggedize your life for a new reality and how your actions model the life you want for everybody else. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome back to Everybody in the Pool. I'm talking with climate futurist Alex Steffen, who is dropping truth bombs about the future we already live in and what we can do to both survive it and create a better one. I um, read this book recently. I do this other podcast where we interview authors of climate fiction about how they're imagining this reality. And Omar Elakad was the recent author. Yeah. And he talks about how he, he talked about in an essay somewhere else about how everyone thinks that the future is salvageable, right? Like we just sort of want to believe that the future is what we can salvage, which also removes the burden of having to do anything now. I think that there's also, let's go, let's dig into this idea of sort of individuality and collective, mm -hmm. right? I, th I, I hear people say a lot, well, I can't do anything about client. Individuals can't do anything. This is a collective problem, which I will confess, I find particularly lazy. <laughs> I Yes, I disagree with that statement, yeah. Because what is a collective made out of, <laughs> people? Um, and it sounds like in some ways what you're saying is, leaving aside, yes, like, I think what you're saying is, look, in some cases, rich people who are generally going to be okay are going to have to do more. It is, you know, so it's not only just individual action, it's the United States will have to do more to help Barbados, yeah. for example. But also that it is incumbent on people who have the means, the care, the the wealth and the interest to adopt everything they possibly can to yeah. make it easier for Barbados. Yeah, I mean, I, I would argue that it's even a tougher situation than that, which is that we are currently in a situation where things are changing fast, but our cultural, political, societal, economic understandings of the magnitude and speed of that change haven't 
right. evolved alongside it. And so most of us are thinking about the world in ways in which that, that aren't true. Mm -hmm. right? We're still thinking that we basically have the world we had. And there's just this eco stuff happening too. So we got to do something about that, whether that's charity or, right. you know, adding a program to our company's efforts or whatever, right? Adopting an ESG strategy, something like that. But the reality is the world is profoundly different already now than it was 30 years ago. And most of us can't even, we're not yet ready for what's already happened. And we're totally unprepared for what we know is coming, much less what might happen. Mm -hmm. And as people, more and more people understand that, there is, you know, a cascade of efforts arising from personal self-interest, but also corporate self-interest, government response to stakeholders, all that. There's more and more individual kinds of efforts piling up because people, they're on a spectrum and some people cannot afford to ignore reality for very long. And as that piles up, we reach, we start reaching towards a tipping point. And in that situation, we have to think about what it means to be acting in a, in a much different way. Like what is important right now is that as many people, institutions, governments, et cetera, begin to behave as if the world that now exists matters, not that we get everyone to agree. Mm-hmm. Because right? I'm pretty sure that like there are a lot of people, especially in America, who will go to their graves denying that climate change is happening. Yeah. Right. Um, in some cases, we'll you know we'll be the victims of climate change right. and still be denying that that it's happening. So yeah. we're not. This is not a mass public education and mobilization effort. We need mobilization, but that's not what's going to get us there. What's going to get us there is the change of strategic priorities that each of us experiences as we understand this is how the world is, right? And that might be on a personal scale about how we manage our careers, our investments, where we decide to live, the choices we make in terms of how we protect our home, our family, our financial security. It will certainly involve institutional changes. We see already a lot of institutions that are working to delay change, right? We have a whole sort of schema of predatory delay, as I call it, where companies work to undermine the scientific consensus, to block political action. But we're also increasingly seeing this, this uh, what I call climate triangulation, which is people embracing the idea of big change. That is the perfect segue to what I would have called you anyway, but the thing that specifically compelled me to call you was this course that you're teaching and the writing that you've been doing recently about ruggedization. Yeah. Talk to me about this kind of campaign. Yeah. So one way to see the planetary crisis is that all human systems have tolerances, right? A bridge can take a flood, one in 10 year flood. It may even be able to take a one in a hundred year flood, but when the one in the 1000 year flood hits it, it's going to wash down the stream, mm -hmm. you know, and that's true for every system that we depend on. And in that situation, what you don't want to do is be caught in what I think of as the brittleness trap, which is a situation in which the, the, the community you're in, the institution you're in, whatever, is reliant on, on systems that are no longer equipped for reality. And as those systems fail, the awareness of the risk that the whole community faces jacks up and undermines the economic and social health of that place. Often what happens is the is younger people, wealthier people, and more talented, skilled people leave first. There's a whole set of things that happen then, from the loss of local tax revenue to 
loss of jobs, to the kinds of hits that communities take that they now can't recover from to the same extent, that just erode the prosperity of that place, sometimes rapidly, sometimes in dribs and drabs over a decade mm -hmm. or more. But what happens is you end up with places where the value of the place ends up collapsing, which makes it incapable of rebuilding, responding, etc. And that process can happen very fast. And in fact, it's begun to happen. And I expect we're going to see it at a much bigger scale than we once thought possible. Mm -hmm. That we're talking about potentially trillions of dollars of value basically disappearing as people recognize the real risk to those assets and people and places. So what do you do in the face of that? None of us want to be the victim. Yeah. Right? And none of us want to wind up in a situation where our kids can't escape the town we live in because we can't sell our home, they can't get a job, whatever. So what does that, like, when I translate that into my life, does that mean move? You know, does that mean, like, and, and is it, so it's sort of, there's community-level ruggedization, there's country-level, but then there's the individual, maybe hard questions about the places that you used to think were okay to live. Absolutely. It's part of that personal discontinuity that I talked about, is that mm -hmm. we now have to look at the places we live through the lens of risk and change. Some of us live in places that are perfectly fine. Some of us are, you know, for the for the foreseeable future. No place is totally safe, but places that are relatively safe compared to many. Mm -hmm. Some of us live in communities that have a lot going for them, right? That are less vulnerable, are subjected to less risk, et cetera. And maybe we just need to move where we live within that community. We might live in a floodplain. We got to get rid of that floodplain house and move somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Some of us live in places that absent a massive, a truly massive, like unprecedented level of government intervention are simply on their way to brittleness, right? To a brittleness collapsed and living there subjects you to this brittleness trap. And you got to move if you're being sensible. Which is why sometimes you will see lists of cities that are considered climate havens. And part of the reason for that, let's say Ann Arbor, Michigan is because, or Ithaca, New York is because the the towns themselves have invested massively in resilience and even mitigation. Absolutely. And I think there's a strong argument to be made that a place's readiness to act is more important in some, in some ways than its degree of safety, that you can be in a place that has some real hazards, but if it's addressing those hazards, you know, head on and in a realistic way, you might be better off than a place that has fewer hazards, but's doing nothing to get ready for those hazards, right? So there are certain nations around the world, there are certain states in the US, provinces in Canada, whatever, that are not doing as well in being realistic about what's happening as others. And there are some places, obviously, that have basically just decided that they are opposed to the idea of acting, of even acknowledging the need to act. And so nothing is being done. And that even if you're in the best place in a state that's doing nothing or even preventing action from happening, that best place may not be as good as it looks, you know? Conversely, I think that because there is such a need for personal ruggedization, for the ability to be in a place that offers you a degree of safety, the, the capacities of places that are really acting and the attractiveness of those places are going to grow. Right. I think places that are really beginning to move, beginning to understand this, will see more people wanting to live there, will attract more talent, mm -hmm. more businesses, more investment. And that's going to have a virtuous cycle of allowing those places to be bolder in their responses. No place is doing good well enough now. 
There's there's no place that you could say this is a an A grade. No place in the world. I would argue no place in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And part of this is just it's the problem of speed, right? Which is that what we thought might happen 30 years ago and we were trying to avoid became something that was likely to happen 20 years ago that we still hope to avoid, but we didn't think would arrive very soon, you know, to now it's here and it's all happening much faster than we anticipated, not necessarily scientifically, but culturally. Um, The science has been pretty good. Would we say, though, that even some of it has been scientifically faster than we expected? There have been systems where people were like, oh, we didn't expect that to happen until 2100, right? Right. Or I saw somebody mention the other day that like a lot of the climate modeling for, let's say, the eastern seaboard never took into account wildfire smoke. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's all there's all sorts of those things. Right. And there will be lots of things like that where we just don't or, you know, nobody maybe totally realized that all the extreme weather would mean that every flight would be canceled for two days. Yeah. You know, there's these kind of knock on. And it's those follow-on effects that that also are really such a, a big deal, mm-hmm. right? Because we tend to go, well, how much damage does a bunch of smoke in the sky really cause us? You know, some inconveniences, some some health concerns. Uh, it's easy to pass it off until you start to realize, well, that's also, you know, a hit to the growing season. It's also the cancellation of tourism and, and of business flights. It's more people winding up in the hospital, stressing, you know, already stressed health systems, et cetera, right? It's a certain amount of people having negative psychological effects. All of these things add up to a bigger and bigger impact. And part of what I think we're all trying to do, I mean, we all want there to just be a refuge, right? We all just want there to be someplace. Oh, man, if you just... Come on, Greenland. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) If you just go to Iceland, everything's cool. You could stop worrying about this. We all want there to be an Iceland. Yeah. But there kind of is no place that's a refuge. So the best we can do is this complex calculation of where our lives are likely to thrive. And I don't think that it's the only thing that people need to pay attention to. I think there are a great many reasons why you might make a bad choice in terms of climate risk and, and future impacts that is a good choice for you as a person, right? Not least of which is maybe you live in a place where all your family is and all your friends are, and you're just, you're not going to move. You're not going to leave. You love that place. You wouldn't be yourself if you lived somewhere else. Right. That's not a, that's not a dumb decision. It may be an unfortunate one, but it's not dumb. Then you better be an evangelist. Then you better be pushing your city government to do the work. Then you better be adopting, right? It's sort of like there are places that could get better if enough people row in that direction? Yeah, I mean, there are some places that are very hard to imagine a positive future for. Sure. But there are a lot of places that are in the gray zone. Yeah. Now, at least, right? Where a significant investment, changes in priorities, some triage, minimizing risks, abandoning, doing managed retreat, these kinds of things could actually wind a place uh, you know, much better off in the future. All right, let's end this hard truths conversation on an up note. Because while Alex is quite clear that no one is going to ride in and save us, like FEMA or the Avengers or something, we do have tools. Something that I think a lot about and talk a lot about is just how good our solution set is now. Oh, yes. Please tell me more. Yeah. So, you know, for years I did this project, worldchanging.com, solutions-based journalism. Mm -hmm. And back then we used to talk about how amazing it would be if you could get a given technology or design or something to be X amount better. 
how much more it would be, how much more competitive it would be in the market, but also how much more widely it could be deployed, the other innovations that could be built off it, et cetera. And in almost every case, we now live in that in the pipe dream that we were having 15 years ago. Yeah. It's not just the technological innovations, obviously, clean energy and energy efficiency and building design and all sorts of things, but it's also social innovations, right? The ability to understand how to finance these changes, how to pursue new opportunities in sustainable business or climate tech or whatever. Huge evolutions in terms of the kind of policies that we understand will drive forward more rapid change. Lots and lots of evidence. And even even products, like even products, would you say? Even sort of economic developments or consumer interests? Like, yeah. how deep does this solution set go? Well, I mean, I think we're seeing, you know, we're seeing this with EVs. Yeah. Whereas clear EVs could work in, say, 2005, but they were really rare. And now it's, the discussion is not, whether EVs will become essentially nearly all or all of the market, but when. That's a huge shift forward. I think the place that I see a lot of change about to occur is in building technologies, Mm -hmm. in the understanding that we can save a lot of energy, improve comfort, improve safety by designing our buildings more intelligently, but also that with various kinds of new materials and new manufacturing processes and new planning priorities, urban planning priorities, we can build a lot more than we're used to thinking of building. And especially as people are gonna be on the move, as we're gonna see displacement and climate migration and so forth, we need to build at an enormous scale. And that's really much more possible now than it was 20 years ago to do that and do it in ways that you hit high efficiency standards and so forth. And we're learning all sorts of things about how to rapid deploy, for example, a bike network in a city, how to improve transit, how to better manage the water supply of a city that faces a drought. I mean, just thing after thing after thing that were the cool ideas somebody was talking about doing, say, 20 years ago, are now the things that are on the shelf to do if a community or local government has the the intelligence and wherewithal to deploy them. I mean, so that's all awesome. And you can easily build around yourself a life with your personal choices that has a far lower carbon footprint, that's much more rugged to disruptions and so forth than you could 10 or 20 years ago. And that's amazing. And everybody should be doing that who can. I mean, if it works for your situation, you should have, you know, solar panels on your roof or an EV or be harvesting rainwater or whatever. I mean, all these things are, are just, especially if you're reasonably well off, are just right off the shelf solutions. And that's a real sea change. The fact that we could make the entire global economy pretty sustainable, most of the way to sustainability in a couple decades, if we just did it, is great, right? It's no longer a theoretical challenge. It's no longer, oh, how might we do this? It's Most of the stuff is there. It's how do we speed adoption rates? Right, exactly. How do we get more boots on the ground, so to speak, you know? It can get to you that we live in this transapocalyptic situation and people are going to suffer who don't deserve it, you know. But on the other hand, if we move quickly enough, we can still create situations that are better than the ones we have now. They're not just degraded versions that are kind of more sustainable, right? But we can build cities that are better and more livable and more prosperous. We can build an economy that delivers sustainable prosperity to a lot more people on a much fairer, but also a much more prosperous basis. I mean, these are possibilities that we have in front of us. And I think that if you're somebody who's really trying to make an impact, you should be laser focused on the optimism of what you might be able to trigger through your actions. Mm -hmm. 
it can be hard when daily headlines are gloomy at best, but I really think that, you know, optimism is a really smart choice right now. Optimism is always a really smart choice. Combined with borrowing from Octavia Butler again, forethought and planning. Alex Steffen's newsletter is called Snap Forward. You can find that on Substack, and he'll be offering another public crash course on ruggedization in September. AlexSteffen.com is the website. And that's it for everybody in the pool. You can find my newsletter at mollywood.co and email your thoughts, your reactions, and your ideas to in at everybodyinthepool.com. See you next week.